Hey everyone, I'm Hanif Fazel, and I'm on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, really, I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. Right now. <laughs> You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. I want them on the Visceral Change Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of the Chopping Block. As always, we are looking to bring you some good information around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And today. We have one of the leading practitioners uh, in terms of this work, Hanif Fazel. Uh, Hanif is the, um, the, the co-founder and managing partner of the Center for Equity and Inclusion in Portland, Oregon. Hanif, what's going on, man? Happy to have you here. Uh, not much. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. appreciate the time to get connect. Yeah, for sure, man. Really, really looking forward to having this discussion. Um, you know, one thing about the chopping block we kind of mentioned a little bit offline is that it, it does a good job of raising awareness in certain fields and disciplines where folks may not necessarily think DEI has a space. Um, and I, I don't get to discuss some matters with actual practitioners who are rooted in the work very often. And so uh, every time I get the chance, I get excited to do so. And so I'm really hoping you are able to provide some insight on what CEI does, I'll talk a little bit about your journey, and maybe tackle some of the challenging questions and discussions that people don't really want to talk about. Um, so really, really looking forward to that. Um, let's start with the first question and hopefully you can appreciate my investigative journalism with this question. <laughs> but, uh, Hanif, you are of Indian and Mexican descent, correct? That is it. That's true. Dad, dad, Indian, Mex, mom, Mexican. Um, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and you were born in Chicago. All right. Follow me here. You were born in Chicago and raised in Portland, where you moved at three years old. Uh, your father immigrated from Tanzania to India to Chicago. Is this correct? Impressive, yes. Oh, look at that. Right. All right, all right. <laughs> in that, Hanif, there's, obviously there's, there's a lot of experience that comes with that. I'm going to toss the microphone back to you now, uh, now that I can kind of brush my shoulders off a little bit. Uh, talk about... Talk about growing up as sort of a biracial, multi-ethnic child um, with respect to those specific identities. A lot of times when we hear about biraciality, it's usually black and white. Here in Tucson, you hear a lot about, you know, white and, and Latinx as well. Um, talk about this Indian and Mexican relationship in terms of your identity um, what, and what that was like growing up. And then how did your familial shape, cultures, um, experiences inform, impact or shape the experiences you had growing up in Portland at large? Oh, I love that. Um, well, obviously, I, like nothing shape, has shaped me more than um, my ethnic roots um, in in terms of how I see the world, and that is an interesting interplay. And there's some parallels, actually, um, culturally. I think there's a lot of parallels, um, and in terms of both my um, parents uh, growing up, there's some parallels around how we experience how I experience that ethnicity, and so. Um, let me, let me say this. So, um, let me go back to my grandparents just for a second, because I think yeah, that's please. really kind of grounding in how I see and understand race. And so, um, on my dad's side, he's fourth generation Indian born in Tanzania, Africa. Um, when he, when my grandmother was born, um, it, oh my God, when my, when my, my grandmother was pregnant, uh, it was discovered that she was having twins. At the same time, uh, with my dad, so my dad was a twin. So at the same time, my grandfather's sister, 
could not have kids. Um, and so it was decided that one of the twins uh, upon birth would go um, to uh, the, the aunt, more or less. Because so she couldn't have kids. She couldn't have kids. That's right. So um, a, a while back, um, so the, when they were born, my dad ended up being the one who was um, chosen to go with the aunt. So a while back, I had an interview with my father and um, just kind of getting his whole life story. And I've known about that story for a long time. And I asked him, um, hey, dad, why did they choose you versus Nuzer uncle? Um, and he looked at me and it was, I, I'm not sure if it was just the way he said it or what he said, but he just looked at me almost like it was obvious. And he just kind of rubbed his skin and he goes, I, I had like, uh, so what's mm. how that plays out in one of the ways it shapes me is that, so my father unknowing to him then is adopted by his aunt and mm. by all accounts, his and everyone else's accounts that I've known in the family becomes like the biggest mama's boy. Like the, the mom just dotes over him and loves him and he loves her. And then she would pass at a young, at a young age in a very kind of traumatic way for him. Oh no! Um, and my father then was returned to home, uh, to his home, um, and in also not the most kind of more maybe in a definitely in a traumatic way over time. Mm. It's to, he discovers it's told to him, "Hey, she's wow. not really your mom. This is my mom." All that kind of stuff. So, very long story short, wow. that would send my dad reeling, and in a way that he would never quite for me ever see him fully recover from. Um, and so, you know, some of that anger and some of that frustration was taken out in, in all kinds of ways in our own family systems. I, right. My dad never really um, fully came to grips with um, the impacts of that. certainly how all that happened. And I think culturally, you know, he's not growing up in a generation where he goes and says, well, I should go see a therapist around this, you know? Mm. Uh, so, all of that has a huge, so one of the things that makes me think about all, all the time I, I get like, um, well, is white supremacy something that's just a US centered thing or a Europe centered thing? And I always feel like white supremacy was, you know, Europe's greatest import in some ways mm, you know, mm. of like what it was able to mass. And so it's, it's interesting to me that even in a small town in Tanzania, Africa, um, white supremacy is playing out, right? And that experience would then shape my life in a big way, shape my relationship yeah. with my father, it shaped our experience of our family. Um, and so from a, before I even knew it, white supremacy was playing a number on me, my family, all of that. So he, he does immigrate to Chicago. He meets my mother, who's full Mexican. And on my grandmother's side, my, my memory of my grandmother, one of my, my most kind of impactful memory of my grandmother is when she's passing. And as she's passing, we all get to, we, we were all around her and her last kind of, she, as she was passing, she was kind of losing her, her faculty, mental faculties and all that. And, um, so she was just only speaking in Spanish. Mm. Uh, and I was just noting that I couldn't understand her. And my grandmother had done what many uh, Latinas had done at the time, which was assimilate her children as much as possible. Mm. Uh, cut the language, cut the culture, cut all of those kinds of things out, out from uh, my mom's experience growing up. 
Um, and so I grew up in a home then that was, um, that, that was then passed down to me. Right. Where, um, I did not feel the sense of cultural connection, um, to the, the Latinx, uh, my Latinx roots and even some of the kind of more basic cultural norms, certainly the language would be, and not having access to the language would be a huge, huge piece for me. So, you know, I grew up in these two homes where, when you think about the role of white supremacy and you think about the ways in which uh, different communities of color are coping or dealing or impacted with it, I, I grow up in this home where it's like, here we are, where it's, um, you know, on one hand, a push to assimilation um, on my mom's side and mm -hmm. not really understanding kind of what that means on my dad's side, um, kind of reeling from kind of in some ways the rage and anger of, of, of the impacts, but not always even knowing that it's coming from that. Right. Um, right. And so then here I come and I'm born right yeah. uh, into this home. And so there was a very dominant kind of Indian kind of culture in the house to some extent. Um, sure. Uh, but also now I'm first born us. And then we move out to Portland, Oregon, that is predominantly white uh, and vastly. We grew up in a white suburb out here called tiger. And, um, so here, here we have it then, right? Where I'm not as connected as I want to be culturally um, on, the, on the Latinx side of things. I am connected on the Indian side, but my dad's anger has me feeling like I want to disconnect from right. all, sure. things, all things dad. Um, and now I'm in a wide, completely white environment where everything from my name to um, any cultural things that are going on at home to are all not welcomed in a really kind of very overt manner. Yes. Right? yes. So here is then the experience of a brown person, right? Like of like both, where do I, and a mixed brown person. So yeah, you know, I hear this all the time with mixed folks of like not feeling a sense of belonging in either culture. Mm -hmm. or not feeling yeah. connection. And certainly there is that experience. And then at the same time, all the usual stuff of not clear, clear markers of not being accepted in, in terms of a predominantly white culture. Which, yeah. So that's a long and short kind of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so your, your father found out about his youthful experience, right? The adoption as an adult, but he, you were already around and the family already yeah, started. He, he found out as a child. So oh, he, he found out as a child. He, okay. He moved back to his mom. I think his, his, his adopted mom, his aunt, um, passed away when he's seven, I think. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then, but he, so, and you were saying he, he, he never was able to really grapple with it to the point where it actually manifested in the household when he had his own family as well. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That, uh, that's powerful. And, you know, I, I've been to Portland a number of times and you talk about it being a very uh, white area and, you know, we'll talk maybe a little bit about that as we go on, but, um, there's a lot of unresolved trauma racially within Portland. And it's always difficult for areas to begin doing the work if they have yet to reconcile with with some of their own internal issues. Um, it's very, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very um very reflective of the larger cosm of the United States, which is has never really done a great job of, of reconciling slavery or um, you know the Trail of Tears, and as a result finds ways to kind of work around it rather than 
having that discussion, which is really at the heart of a lot of the good stuff you do with CEI, which we'll get to in a second. But I want to, I want to, I want to stick in this particular time frame, sort of in 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 your youth, your adolescence, your young adulthood. Um, you received your bachelor's in applied science and psychology from from Portland State. You got it. You got okay. it. Uh, at this point in your life, Hanif, uh, what was the plan? Were you always justice oriented? Were you trying to move into psychology? Sort of where was your mind here based on uh, sort of your, your perceived trajectory uh, when you went and received your bachelor's? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that happened with the childhood growing up is, you know, I think this happens to, I see this when I was working with kids, you know, I spent 20 years working with kids, families of color and community that, you know, when, when the kiddos um, hit this teenage year, teenage years, all that kind of stuff, they, and they're dealing with all kinds of barriers, you start to see them coping, you start to see yes. the anger manifesting in all kinds of ways. And so the same thing in some ways happened with me, which is, you know, one of the impacts of um, how things played out was my family system kind of collapsed. So my father left at a um, by the time I was in sixth grade, moved to BC, my mom, um, and was raising me and my two sisters on, um, minimum wage. Just so that time it was three fifty an hour working out at seven 11. My dad mm. would support any of that. So we were really doing what we could to just make it by. And then I was turning into this ang very angry kind of Brown kid, right? Like sure. this idea of just reeling from what's going on at home being in the school systems that were just constantly an experience of rejection and exclusion and um, just marginalization at every kind of level. Um, and, you know, at that age, all there is is do is get more and more angry. And, um, and with a mom who was, you know, trying to do all she could to hold on to it all. And one of the things that ended up happening for a variety of reasons is my entire family system fell apart mm -hmm. and I would find myself, um, my mom moved away and I would find myself parentless in that, in that moment, um, or without any living on my own. And so I had a girlfriend at the time who was 18. Um, when I was mm. six, my mom left. And so she could get huh. a lease and she was also getting kicked out of her home. So, um, my mom left, my dad's out of the picture. My sisters are gone. I had no place to go. I was, um, myself making like three fifty, three seventy five an hour or something like that. Right. Um, and so we got into this very low income housing complex in downtown Portland um, called the Civic, which is ironic right now because it's this massive condo, really nice condo sitting right across from where the Portland Timbers play. But um, oh. at the time, it was kind of like as stereotypical of an image as you can get in terms of a housing, low income housing complex. And gotcha. um, one of the experiences I had there at 16, you know, was that. I had always grown up poor and especially when my dad left, this was poverty at a whole nother. Mm. This was, you walk out like everywhere you look, people are just trying to survive. And that's whether it's the prostitution going on in the hallway, the drug dealer across the way, whether it was oh. like homelessness and houselessness all around me. So I had never really been in a situation where really no one was thinking like, well, one day I'm going to get out of this. You know, one day I'm going to be somebody like there was none of that. Every day was just like, how do I just make it to the next day? Like how do right. I just make it to the next day? So that experience of being in that, like both two places survival, I actually think is as difficult as the civic was on me. It was not nearly as difficult as my education experience. Like I, if you want to talk about like 
what was more harmful being in the civic and without parents and just trying to figure it out. At least, at least when we were trying to figure out, we were all kind of like, yeah, like we're all kind of like, Hey, everyone like, just don't get in each other's way. Don't do whatever. Just like, we all just were kind of in this place of survival, but that's right on the, at school that it was how uh, I had kind of bought in, like school was kind of like a place I was supposed to do well. I was supposed to be able to make, but it was at every turn reminding me that I did not look like what success was. I did not sound like mm. it's, it was the like, messaging. Yeah. And it was so clear, like sometimes very overt in all the subtle ways. Right. So right. for me um, at that time, one thing that I became really clear about at least subconsciously was that these systems like school or all the other things in community that I was part of were just not really ever set up for anybody that was looking like, looking like me. Like I couldn't articulate it in any kind of way, but I knew that school wasn't for me. Yeah. I knew it wasn't like, I wasn't the poster child of what success looks like there. Right. And then I was also in this space of like really survival, like, Hey, this is what it means to survive. So over time, I think, so when I, I managed to find my way through it all. And I think when I got out of college, I wasn't totally sure. I had no idea. Like at that time, diversity, equity, inclusion didn't even really exist. Like mm. certainly maybe diversity, we probably were using it at that time. But um, to me, all I knew, I had this, I did have this kind of almost hyper preoccupation with this idea of um, what does it mean to create spaces where we can thrive. Yes. Right. And what do we need to do? Because it had such a traumatic kind of like impact on me. So my initial stuff out of the gate from school was um, where, who do I know who's in survival that I can support one way or the other? And that was kids. It was kids, families, and communities. So my Mm. initial, when I came out of school, my whole focus was on the only thing that I knew, which was um, kids. Um, in that sense, like I, I could relate to kids in families who are really struggling. I could yes. relate to the ones who weren't doing well in school or teachers right. like weren't school material one way or the other, like those kinds of kids who people would kind of put to the side, which were pretty like much wrote off. Color, yeah. Were kids, all kids of color, but also the ones who were really struggling, like who were not like, I'm going to prove you wrong, but more were like, well, fine, fuck it. I'm gone then too. Like, like uh-huh. those kids, I loved working with those kids. Um, and so that's where initially I thought my place in the world was, was how do I help these kids and families and communities figure out how to navigate the system and step into a possibility that I see for them, but they don't see for themselves. And yes. you know, one thing I'll say is like my name actually has a meaning. It means, um, true believer. Oh. Um, and for a, it, that name has guided me in a lot of different ways. But at that period of time in particular, I feel like believing in kids and in their possibility, believing in families and our communities and, and its possibility was kind of the thing that I could, I was so grounded in. Yes, it's huge. I, I love that. I I did some work prior to even entering the world of higher ed. I did work um, with young kids as well, kindergarten, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. And, you know, when I did that, I learned one thing I learned about myself is that um, I had a, I had a knack for helping people and a desire for helping people, whether they be five to seven or nine, or whether they be 15, 17, 19, 25. Um, 
uh, you know, when, what I recognize when I reflect back is I remember that uh, I was excited that I was able to work with the kids and they really took to me in a certain way during the school hours. But when the mom and dad came, you know, everything kind of changed. It's easy to kind of forget, not forget who I am, but you know, the, the rules of engagement, right. And the authority figures shift and maybe similar to you, I saw myself saying, you know, I, there are, I, I, there are a slew of people out there who don't have mom or dad to come show up or anybody to come help redirect or course correct. And I want to be that person for those folks uh, who might be floating around the college area, sleeping out of their car or, you know, on their last penny trying to make it work that I can really be of assistance to. So I, I, I'd be curious, Hanif, um, I want to, I want to move into CEI in just a second, but you spent a lot of time in working with the youth and families and even K-12, um, you know, 20 plus years. Um, what did you learn from that particular environment? Uh, and are there any relationships that you've seen between your time in that particular sector and then later the work you're going to produce with CEI? I mean, I learned um, so much. So the thing that is, there's two things that I think are, the, the primary thing connected to CI's work in DNI was that, um, you know, if you're working with kids, we would, we created, I, I got a chance to create a program called Step Up and it was um, mm -hmm. uh, a program that was providing kind of extended day services to kids who were really struggling in school. So it was academic supports, mentoring, all this kind of stuff. Um, so we spent a lot of very personal time with kids. Um, we would take them away for, you know, week camp and get to know them at a very deep and meaningful level, really challenge them in lots of different ways. We were in their homes doing family visits. And one of the things that always stuck with me, um, was, um, you got to see that the kids, although, and the families and communities were kind of, um, identified as the problem in kind of subtle ways, like a problem that we have to fix. Like they've got right. problems we have to fix. Right. Right. Um, that when you were, when you were with them, you were like, nah, no, no. <laughs> like, no, the problem is not here. Like, um, yeah, like, there's no lack of caring about education in communities of color. In fact, like no. what was always heartbreaking is that parents believed in education for their kids way more than the education system believed in educating that their kids were yeah. open to being educated. We're like, we're actually committed to them. Like the commitment to education, you couldn't measure the commitment that parents of color had to education compared to the commitment education had to their kids of color. Like yes. you can't, there's not no. even a, a comparison. Like, and so it was heartbreaking to see parents banking on believing in like, continuing to put their kids in um, the systems that were really not committed uh, yes. in, a, in a real way. So that was, and you get to see not just the caring, but you get to see the determination, the, the intelligence, you get to see the, the heart and the grind. I mean, all of what is in our communities and you, you are really clear, like, this is not the issue. Like this is, no. Here is not where the issue is. In fact, here's where the solutions are probably going to lie if we'd actually listen to them. And to me, then the transition is, you know, I spent I literally over 20 years across the country um, mm. own program, but then would do in, intensive work with kids across the country and families and communities. Um, and I had this one moment where we were working with um, these kids and, and one night of the program, we get these kids in smaller groups and they would talk about some of the barriers 
that were going on in their lives. And this one, um, I'll never forget this one African-American girl um, started sharing and um, more or less she was talking about how her mom was dying um, and from, from crack addiction. Mm. And as I was listening to it, um, you know, we did the best job of kind of wrapping ourselves around her and um, providing supports for her, all the, all those kinds of things. And it was amazing to watch kind of the way in which community comes together to hold someone up when they're really struggling. I think that you just find in communities of color that are beautiful. Yeah. And at the end of it, though, one of the things I realized when I walked out of it or that room, I, I thought about two things. I thought about her mom and I thought about the way in which this world has put barrier after barrier after barrier in front of black women. Yes. And I wonder about the like, at what point did mom say like, okay, like it's just too much. And this is for whatever reason, the way that she decided to cope. Um, and when did she lose that? Mm -hmm. You know, at what point did the chipping away of all these systems and, and what it does to black women. So that's one thing I started wondering about mm. what, where, and what was missing? What was, you know, where were the supports lacking? How was she not set up? All these things. The, the thing that really hit me as much is that was I realized I have now heard this same story probably a thousand times. Yeah, right. right. Like, and it's like a, and so if I knew that it wasn't within the, the issue wasn't in the community and I, mm. but I knew, give me a skin color, give me a zip code. And I, it is that predictable about right. what <laughs> happen to a kid. Mm. put this tell me the skin yeah give me name zip code and tell me the 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 darkness of that skin um tell me if they're legal or they're not legal you know like i can tell you with high degree of predictability what and so then i started thinking like it's not these kids then what is it like what is in play here that like makes these disparities not just so persistent but so predictable and mm question I had is like, hey, am I participating in this in ways that I don't know? Like, am I perpetuating things that I don't want to know? So as much as I loved and I will always love direct service with kids and actually where my heart is and I think maybe is the best thing, the most meaningful thing, the work I've ever been a part of is being in those circles and working with kids. Yeah. There felt like there needed to be, for me, an investigation into like, what is this system that we're part? I couldn't name it. I had no language. Mm -hmm. I had no sense of like, if you had asked me what systemic racism was at that moment, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that right. existed like any of that. I just knew it wasn't our fault. Right. <laughs> I just knew right. it wasn't our fault and I knew it was predictable. I knew something wasn't setting up. And I knew from growing up in upper middle-class white um, Portland, um, even though I didn't have the money there, that's where we grew up in these upper middle-class suburbs, that sure. school systems look phenomenally different at Beaverton <laughs> High School than it did at Roosevelt High School. Like I, right. I could put those together. Like this is like the education, the setup, everything is so mm -hmm. different here compared to yep. there. So those things started to like, I could put all these things are adding up um, together. I just didn't have language or anything like that to help me understand what yeah. is actually that's, that's critically important. I was sharing a um, a similar story 
uh, the other day I had the, I had the pleasure of keynoting this, this, this conference, uh, uh, sort of as a, the last day as the opening keynote of their final day. And, you know, one of the questions is sort of, you know, how did you come to the work essentially? And, you know, as I was sharing my experience, a, a piece of that is similar to what you said. I remember coming up in the projects, I've, you know, long story short, I wound up going to graduate school and, uh, you know, I didn't have a grasp on racism as a structure by any means. I knew what it was by definition one, you know, my race is better than your race. I didn't know definition two, right? The sociological uh, component of power, privilege, and prejudice, et cetera. That, that piece I didn't have yet. But I always knew that something was off in my relationship sometimes with white folks and what they felt comfortable saying. It It, it, it triggered something, but it didn't it wasn't enough for me to end a relationship or lose my mind, but I knew something shouldn't, yeah, something you, you probably, you're not supposed to say that or, or something's different here. I didn't hit the same way when my black friend said it, for example. Um, and it was because I didn't have the language. And when I got to my master's program specifically, I began getting the language around DEI, words like microaggression, words like privilege, words like intersectionality, um, systems of power. I mean, then I was like, oh, okay. Now it all makes sense. So, so the language, as you named, is really, really important. And uh, sometimes, sometimes we tend to lose lose sight of that. You know. Yeah, um, I feel like language and framework. Like, if you don't have a framework to understand what's going on, then, and especially because racism and systemic racism is so both overt. Once you, once you have a lens, you can see it, but it can be subtle. You don't. It just mm -hmm. never feels right, right? Um, yeah. Without yeah. meaning it, it's interesting. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, okay, so you you then co-founded CEI in mm -hmm. 2015. Um, mm -hmm. So you you all have been making some strides and moving for a, a good while now, almost 10 years. Um, tie this together for me. You talked a little bit about it, but what was the impetus? What was the the turning point that made you say, you know what, I'm I'm stepping away from from these organizations. I'm gonna I'm gonna found my own. Uh, and 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 really start to make a difference. What was that turning point for you? Well, I think for me, I was um, Step Up was housed in a larger nonprofit, um, and so one of the things that ended up happening is when we I got a um, when I got a chance to start Step Up, um, we basically got um, a set of dollars to start this program, and I was early on really committed to having people from the community be part of the program. Like, you know, again, without a lot of language around it, I just knew like, hey, we need to be the ones mentoring our own kids kind of thing. Um, yes. And mm -hmm. so one of the things that I did was it was an all white nonprofit um, that I was a part of. So very quickly, we started having this influx of black and brown folks from the community, right? Mm -hmm. In there mm -hmm. who were operating differently, who were talking differently, who were culturally different, all that kind of stuff, right? Uh -huh. And then the program started to get both national recognition and local recognition. And so it started growing. And so in a very short amount of time, it almost doubled the size of the organization. Um, wow. And so it, it, like within three years, we were just, we were now in multiple high schools. We were, you know, um, I think at, the staff was, was getting larger and larger, all that kind of stuff. So um, what we ended up doing is before we had any kind of like real roadmap around that stuff, um, we knew we had to do something. And then courageous conversations about race came into Portland school district. Um, mm. And so we were early on 
um, what they called a beacon school for that work. And okay. what Courageous Conversations did was it gave us some agreements and it gave us some conditions around race. And we really took that and then ran with it, almost created our own kind of process with it in one way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we spent about seven years doing what now I would call really transformational work, where we looked at everything from not just um, every, everything from how we did marketing to how we did HR, to how we did right. services to kids and family. And over a seven to really seven to almost a decade of time, there was a transformation of the organization and yes. you get to really see like, Hey, culturally, it feels different in here. We operate differently. We act differently. People of color are really thriving in this organization, um, in a way that they hadn't experienced before. It wasn't perfect yes. by any means. There were lots of mistakes, but that idea, um, really gave me this idea of like, Hey, there's something here. And so other organizations started hearing about it and asking like, Hey, would you mind helping us one way or the other? And that's where, that's where the impetus of CI started happening is why I started having this idea of like, Hey, wait a minute. At the time there was like, just outside of crazy conversations around race in education, all there was, was like a two day training or Mm -hmm. a three day training, whatever it ends up being, but nobody had really thought about like, Hey, we need to think about this long-term, like over multiple years, we need to be really building capacity around common language and framework. Right. We need to be able to address kind of how this sits in the culture of an organization. And then we need to infuse it into opera operations like that. And that's going to take some time. Yes. So I had an idea to do this. I was able to get, um, local foundation support. Um, Meyer Memorial Trust is kind of one of the ones who kind of really took a chance on me. And really, I don't know why I did. I was like, um, it's actually a funny race moment where I, I was like, unconfident. I was still unconfident. I had this great idea. I'd never run a for-profit business or any consulting company, any of that kind of stuff. But I knew that like, this was the right idea. And this is what I want to do with my life. And this is mm-hmm. like, this was the right thing. Um, I had foundations who were um, willing to back uh, about uh, three quarters of a year of funding. And so I knew I could get through the first three quarters. And um, basically my pitch was, let me work with 10 organizations, five a year um, to those foundations. And let me try on these uh, kind of a new way of doing equity work. And I kind of found five organizations. But I was still so nervous to start it. And I had a yeah, of course. Time when I was two and I was doing fine in my own. So I went to the the CEO of our nonprofit, um, who was a white guy. And I was like, hey, look, this is a great idea. I, t- I'm, I know this is going to work. I built step up. I'm, you know, I can build a program, this and that. But can we house this in the nonprofit? Can this be kind of a, a funding part, like a for-profit arm, all this kind of stuff? And I was trying to convince him of that. And I'll never forget. He, um, he looked at me and he said, you know, Hanif, the difference between you and a white entrepreneur, he was like, Uh Oh, white entrepreneur feels like he's on an escalator. Uh, and that escalator is moving up. So even if he falls, um, he's still going up, he's still moving up. That's right. You feel like you're, you act like you're on a slippery, slippery staircase. And the only way to go is down. Thing wow. was, this thing was like, this is mission drift <laughs> for our organization. This is mission drift for our organization. 
And so you can either continue to, at that time, I kind of promoted to associate director. You can continue to move on as associate director, or you're going to have to go out on your own. One of the two, but make a decision. Wow. At that time, my co-founder uh, was for only cares to a black woman. Now pair that with a different way of looking at it. In some ways, but her thing was like, Hanif, this is what you meant to do. Like, let, we can do this together. Like, let's figure out how to do this together. You got to believe in yourself. You got to this and that, all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. it was just a warmth and a belief and a, where with him, it was kind of like, let me just tell you how, how you, and there was truth to all of that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Her, there was like a real belief in what I was up to, a belief in the need for our community. And once she started organizing it that way, like our community needs this. Yeah. Like we need you to be stepping up right now here. Um, and I'm well, willing to go along this ride with you on this um, because we need this. That's right. That's right. And That's right. We are capable of this. That's right. And so out we went. And there was the start of CEI. Um, we had five organizations that we had, me and Froini had believed um, were open to this idea of transformation. We had, were, we told the foundations, give us a year and we'll be able to build base foundation, common language and framework connection to these issues um, and start kind of making inroads into the culture. Love of course, it. way longer than a year. Of course. <laughs> uh, we had all kinds of things in the, in the, in, in the journey of it all. But um, that was uh, the start of it all. That's amazing. It now is your co-founder still with you Absolutely. at the organization? Absolutely. Nice. 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 Um, and we've kind of gone on to spin off another business that's now working on um, building inroads into development. I saw that. We're going to, we're going to tackle that on the back end. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to that. I want to give you some space on that for sure. That's, and that's exciting. These ventures. I, in addition, I noticed that, um, you know, you, you're, you have a, a founder, a co-founder title on a lot of different things, um, you know, from, uh, you know, certificates to, you know, what we'll talk about in a little bit. So that's, that's exciting. It's very clear that, um, you're not somebody who people say, Oh, you know, Hanif says he does this. I know you're, you're, you're demonstrable, you know, you, you, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely something that we can point to and see, which is, which is amazing. Now, um, you know, as a, as an academic, as a researcher, my work is in organizational development, organizational theory, multicultural organizational theory, all that good stuff. And so I always considered myself a systems centered researcher, a systems centered practitioner. Um, I'm very much a believer in uh, organizational design, social design, and the ways in which that it impacts our behavior, with our behavior being a product of that social design. Uh, one thing that CEI states, and that you all you all state, is that the work is grounded in a systemic framework, a systemic racism framework. Excuse me. Break that down a little bit, honey, for the listeners who may not know what systemic racism is, especially as it manifests as a framework. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, when I think about um, a system, because um, we use words like system or institutional racism, and right. like, to most, for us, that makes sense. But for most people, like, that's just language. That's just huh? language. <laughs> <laughs> right. So one of the ways I think about a system is like, um, any system like a human system for the for our human system work there's a muscular system there's a that's right a nervous system there's vascular all these, yeah yeah all these things that are operating within the body to make it work right and so i think the same thing when i think about a, a, a corporation or a, a 
a nonprofit or a foundation, whatever it ends up we're working with, they're the systems that operate within that, that make it function, um, right. help it function. And when I think about those systems, one of the things that um, we've recognized is that the way that we've built these systems, while it's helped an organization to function, it's unintentionally and oftentimes very intentionally, historically very intentionally, and at this mm -hmm. point, oftentimes unconsciously, have been systems, these systems have been built in ways that while it has created profit for the organization, it has, un it has exploited folks of color. Mm -hmm. It has created these disparities that now it doesn't even have to try. Like right now we talk with, with businesses and say like, look, you don't have to try to create a racial disparity right now. It's actually built into the kind of fabric of the sure. organization. Right. Sure. So part of what we want, when I think about a system, I think about how a business operates, right? Like how a nonprofit operates. And when I think about that, then I think it's built really three things kind of help of, when I think about very simple, make a complex thing simple. I think there's three things that help a business function. There's individuals mm -hmm. that are operating in the business or in the, in the nonprofit foundation, whatever it needs to be. There's the culture, um, mm -hmm. kind of organizational norms, uh, narratives, belief systems that are at play. And then there's policies and practices and protocols, right? And those right. three things are always operating kind of together mm -hmm. one way or the other. Yes. So um, what we are trying to do in an organization, we think about like systemically or race is like, hey, um, there are, um, how do we help these three kind of, how do we help individuals build the requisite kind of racial conscious that they need to understand how my individual interpersonal interactions may be perpetuating racial disparities that I don't want to be perpetuating. Like what's yes. my individual role here, both where does my individual bias show up? Where does um, my action show up? All those kinds of things. But what, what does that mean for me? Um, mm -hmm. that, and, and culturally we want to be looking at like, what are the ways in which we are operating um, culturally speaking, norms, behaviors, all that stuff that are unintentionally marginalizing or unintentionally um, limiting the impact people of color can have in the organization. One way mm. or the other. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, how does that show up in our policies and our practices, all of that? Yes. So for us, we, we think when we have to look at the whole system, we have to look at kind of all three levels of interaction or in, um, and be able to put what we call race lens on it. Like have people begin to really consider what are the racial impacts of the way we're organized culturally? What are the racial impacts of the ways we are, um, our policies and practice, the way we live our mission, the way we yes. operationalize it, and my individual actions? What are my, what are the racial impacts? So to get folks into that space of even mm -hmm. wanting that, there's a whole kind of level of consciousness raising that we have to do with folks um, over time. Um, and we have to think about it kind of in a very strategic way. So there's mm -hmm. a way we go about in organizations of working with leadership to understand their role Kind of make sure that up and down a system, there's common language and framework, a common commitment to this work. Yes. Um, and that we're engaging key st stakeholders in, in helping drive it in their organizations. Yes. Um, leadership to ERGs to, you know, all these different groups that may be showing up in, in the organization. Huge. Uh, not specific enough. I, sometimes I feel like I can talk and. and yeah, no, that's. Up. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that nails it. I mean, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, I. I had the pleasure of of, of doing a, a TED talk a couple of years back, and then 
I was going to do another one when the pandemic hit, but they had to pause it. But while we were in the stages, I was in conversation with, um, you know, my, the, the, everybody's assigned a coach at that point. And so my coach, um, who was a woman, woman who ran the entire, uh, piece and she said, or, uh, event. I'll never forget it, man. It's advice that kind of stuck with me because it's popped up a few times since, just in, in different ways. Uh, she basically said to me, you know, Sherrod, you're, uh, I, I hear you, but your message, in your message, you're talking to the 10%. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the 10% of people who, who get it. I, I need you to find a way to connect to the 90. Right? I need you to find a way to connect to the manager of Home Depot, to, you know, the clerk at, at here in the West Coast, clerk at Safeway or Fry's. You know, to the folks who are not in academic fields, who you want to convince that this work is important. So, you know, you talked about this idea of like systemic this or the systems this. Yeah, I mean, for folks like us that we get it because we also have the years of experience behind us. But at the same time, not everybody has that particular language and it can come off slightly esoteric. But I thought you did a great job of of, of breaking that down as, as somebody who I'm always trying to be mindful of the ways in which words land, especially if we're working with uh, organizations that aren't steeped in it the same way. I mean, I've had nonprofits tell me, small nonprofits, like, can you give us a different example or can you deliver this a different way, right? So so I think what you shared there was really, really well said and something that's gonna land for a lot of listeners. Uh, well, yeah, one way to think about it is like, look, we're just not conditioned to really think about experiences of others outside of our own kind of identity. Like and, yes. and specifically racially, um, white folks are just not conditioned to think about the experiences of people of color, right? So they're not sure. asking like, hey, what's the racial impacts of this or that or all those kinds of things. And partly right. because there's a belief that we're all equal. We've all started equal. We're all, all we have to do is just kind of work hard, try hard. Bootstraps. All that kind of stuff. And we mm-hmm. can do it. And the reason we're not being successful is because there's some breakdown there. There's some breakdown in, in kind of individual commitment, agency, all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it takes time. I think any kind of systemic kind of approach to things means that, and this is some of the challenges we get, which is organizations, no matter what organizations we want, want us to move really quickly to what do we do differently? How do we do this differently? What's the strategy? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I believe we have to (laughs) do things differently for this to really work. Like it's actually has to change, end up in behavior change. Before we get to that, we have to understand, like, we have to be able to be able to build a connection to like, what is this? Like one way I think about it is um, Amina, um, she's playing soccer, right? And um, so I've been working with her on, um, she on, she's playing club soccer now. And so that's, it's like mm-hmm. a whole nother level of like, people are really... <laughs> A little too too excited about, uh, but like, but I'm also recognized because she wants to play club, club soccer. She wants to get better, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So I was like, all right, that means Amina that after, we're going to have to practice outside of practice to catch you up to all these other kids because she's been, That's on right. this, been on the club for years, right? That's right. So we've been practicing, and um, like I'm showing her all these drills. I'm showing all you know, and she's getting better and better and better. But once you get to the game, she couldn't kind of put it together. Yeah. <laughs> whole different beast yeah like she kind of knew these skills and all that kind of stuff and she knew like to go in this direction all this kind of stuff but some of it was confidence and then but mm-hmm. i also recognized it. but then i realized oh wait a minute and this is kind of a weird thing i'm like amina has never actually sat down and watched 
a soccer game. Uh-huh. So she's never, she's never actually sat in the stands and uh-huh. watched how soccer is played. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead, she's learned all the technical things, right? Like, hey, I need to, to dribble to the right when someone comes to me. I need, but, but when the game happens, she doesn't actually understand the game she's in. Interesting right? so perspective. Can't put the the tools to she just can't put the tools to to use or any good use because she doesn't see the game. She doesn't see the game that she's a part of. Yeah. It wasn't until I actually sat her on the bleachers and said, Okay, I want you to watch that midfielder because that's the position you play. Like mm-hmm. watch how she moves on the field, watch when she goes. So when they tell you to go to the sideline, look, that's what going to the sideline means. Like that's yeah, that's so the same thing occurs i think when we don't understand the game we're in Mm -hmm. we think Mm -hmm. we like um we think we know we think so i you know like so there's something about like helping helping people understand like hey like pull themselves on the balcony in some sense and say like here's how this has been set up right like here's Mm -hmm. how culture what culture like if you pull yourself out of it here's what culture looks like when it's playing out in an organization yeah. Right. And here's who that helps and who's not, not. Let's give some language to it. Let's put some case, whatever it ends up being. So that then when they step back into the culture, like, okay, now I understand. That's you know, right. This is what it means to be a white person and why, how the culture looks and how it's benefits. Now I know what to look for. I know what it looks like. I know perpetuating yeah. it. Oh, this is what it looks like when it lives in a policy. That's it. Oh, That's exactly it. Okay. Now I understand this is, when he's telling me to ask this question, this is the moment and this is why I do it. But I wouldn't be able to do it if we didn't, if they didn't understand how the whole thing is set up. That's right. Play the whole game in that sense. Does that make sense? That's it. And you know, the, the fact of the matter is right. It's, I, I I share with people, you know, it's not right. It's not you who are, who is inherently racist. It's, it's this unchecked privilege you have that you receive that allows you to, behave and become racist really whenever you want uh, at any point in time, if we're talking to white folks in particular, right? And, you know, same goes for sexism and other identities that are really a product of this larger microcosm. And, you know, it takes us to, you know, because what is privileged by loose definition, other than there are things in the world we don't have to worry about if we don't want to, especially because it doesn't impact our day-to-day negatively. So it requires a lot of times for us to kind of move out of that identity, almost as if you're looking at yourself sort of, uh, from a distance, objectively, in order to see, oh, okay, now I, I have an, a different understanding. And that's why I love the the analogy, although it was reality, of your daughter sort of watching the game from a distance and saying, okay, here's how, here's what they mean, you know, if, you know when you say dribble to the, to the right or to, to the sideline and uh, what a midfielder is supposed to do. Like, I, I can appreciate that because it it really emphasizes the importance of of stepping outside of oneself to have a better understanding of the landscape and right? in, in, uh, of the of the setting. Uh, so one thing about CEI that's pretty abundantly clear to me, especially off of the uh, the framework being grounded in systemic racism, is that there's a very uh, strong, if not chief, emphasis on on race uh, and racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the unique thing though, about DEI, especially the diversity component is that it, it's, it's a mosaic, right? Uh, more than anything it's broad. It covers a lot of different identities to which I tell people, you know, you can give me 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Uh, I'm not going to hit, hit every identity <laughs> there is. So I'm going to miss a couple, you know, because you know, it, it's that vast, um, Hanif, have you and, and folks at CEI ever received any pushback from 
marginalized identities who feel like they're not represented in your work, that your work doesn't speak to them? And if so, maybe how, what does that look like and how have you uh, addressed that? Yeah, I love it. Um, I think it's a um, super great question and, and pivotal that people understand race equity, because I think, again, one of the ways whiteness plays out um, in thinking and in the culture of organization is in kind of either or thinking. Um, and this kind of zero sum, mm -hmm. thinking, right? And so in other words, um, either race equity is just advancing race equity and it's not um, and, and, and it's not advancing any other kinds of marginalization or other identities. And one way we work with organizations is begin to have them think about um, race equity in a more inclusive way. So a couple of things that are important around that question for me. One is race equity is a starting point for a larger conversation. It's not the end point, though. It's the mm -hmm. end point and it's the foundation. And part mm -hmm. of the reason we talk about it being a foundation is really for me kind of three clear reasons. One is, and the most simple reason, is that race tends to be this very historic um, kind of persistent disparity issue, challenge, whatever you want to call it. But we don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. We're massively, massively uncomfortable talking about it. We yes. have all these informal rules about how to talk about it, formal rules about how to talk about it. So on the most simple reason of why should we start with a foundation around race, um, it's like, okay, on the most simple, it's like, okay, it allows us to isolate something that we don't know how to talk about that mm -hmm. is very persistent in its um, impact. And if we can learn how to talk about this and build agreements around how we talk about this, we are going to be able to use those same agreements to talk about almost any other form of marginalization. Sure. So on that end, it's that. The bigger... Mm -hmm. Thing for me, though, when I think about it is um, I'm all about talking about gender. I'm all about talking about poverty. I'm all about talking about sexual orientation. Name the disparity. Let's have that conversation. Yes. But I want to have that conversation in an inclusive manner, meaning like um, I don't want to pretend as if gender is experienced equally. Um, by women, mm. women. so mm. like a black woman is having the same experience as a white woman. Sure, a woman is having the same experience as a black woman. Like yeah. all these kinds of things. So like, let's have the conversation, but let's be able to have a conversation in a way that is able to say like intersectional. Yeah, yeah let's talk yeah. about the experience of black women versus white women. Let's talk about the tension that exists there. Let's talk yeah. about Latinx, Latinas, and what's happening. Like. Let's talk about poverty and let's talk about the way in which poverty exists within white communities. Yes. And the ways in which, and I grew up in a low, I grew up in a wealthy upper middle class white area, but I was in section eight housing and white, because so I was living in poor white. So I know firsthand mm. the limiting nature of poverty in white communities. So let's talk about the ways as a white person in poverty, you have less opportunities in ways in which you have way less resources, in ways in which you can't move because there's these barriers. Let's have that conversation. Let's also talk about how that exists in black and brown communities where those same things happen and you're also hyper-criminalized, over-policed, right? And mass incarcerated. It's a very different experience of poverty. Yes. We can talk about sexual, like my mom, when she came out, I'm sure when my mom came out, she had the experience, many people of color or many 
uh, queer folks are having when they come out, right? But my mom was also Latina, mm -hmm. Muslim kids. That's a very mm. different experience of coming out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. So when we talk about how, what race does as a foundation, starting out with race not only allows us to be able to, on one hand, learn how to have difficult conversations, when we start out in that way, it also allows us to talk about these other forms of marginalization in a more yeah. inclusive manner. Yeah. Right? And the yeah. final thing I think is important for us to name is that, look, um, we were founded in a very overt way around, we were built for racial disparities in a very yeah. overt way, right? So for us to be able to examine the ways in which we built this country, both from a, uh, policy and a legal standpoint built on racial inclusion, right? And a cultural set of norms and narratives that held that in place. Like mm -hmm. it's helpful for us to be able to look at that through race equity lens and be able to then say like, okay, like, and this is hard. And I think why sometimes it takes us a while to build a conscience that we were built for racial disparity. Like we have these racial disparities because we were built for a disparate mm. experience in this country. Mm -hmm. So isolating race up front allows us to both have these conversations. It allows us to have them in an inclusive manner. Mm -hmm. And it all allows us also to start at the foundation here of racial exclusion, oppression, yes. exploitation, right? And be able to locate how those same policies, still same po uh, ways in which we're organized are existing in our current organizations. Yes. But to me, it's like, we're, we're going to get to gender. We're going to, we have to, because it's an intersectional conversation. That's right. Race is just the starting point to get there. You know, it's, it's that old adage, man, that I say all the time right? that, that, that I've heard years ago, sort of once we resolve race, everything else falls in place. And a lot of it has to do with exactly what you said. And once you center it in the United States, or I should say, if you take a United States perspective, you know, as, as, as a legal scholar with the focus in the constitution, I'll be the first to tell you <laughs> that, that race is a part of the, it's a part of the design. The, the, you know, the, I always call, uh, the United States constitution, the oldest organizational development framework that, that there is in the world today, right. literally, uh, you know, as someone who does the work and helps develop, I mean, that's exactly what it is. And the same way we say, okay, you want to have these values here and maybe a mission statement in the vision statement, they're saying we, we want to separate white from black, right? And way back when we declare this to be something we want to do, we're going to call these native folks savages, right? So, I mean, this language is a part of this, of the framework. It's, you go, if you went on the website, their mission statement would say, you know, three, three fifths, right? <laughs> right? And stuff like that, right? So, so it's not, you, you know, you make profound points that, you know, why, we don't know how to talk about it. It's no secret. I mean, you are, you're not saying something that is taboo because it is, you know, a lot under lock and key. I mean, you, this is, it's, it's right in front of your face. Yeah. It's been amended, but the fact of the matter is that the language is there for you to digest and to hold on to. And, you know, you, you, you said some things, I think that it's actually a really good segue to, to my next question. And I only have a couple more for you, Hanif, but, um, I, let me, let me take it from a different lens, right? You talked a lot about, um, sort of why it's important to start with race and how white folks, regardless of their circumstance, sure might be coming from a different perspective, but still I'm, 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 uh, I'm gleaning a little bit from what you said, but I'm still benefiting from privilege. I mean, Baldwin and Du Bois and all these folks were notorious for saying, 
you might be as a white person, you might be destitute, you might be broke, you might be indigent, but at least you're not black here. Like you always have that to rest on. You'll always have that to sit on. Right? And a lot of that is what, what I'm hearing you say. Um, you mentioned earlier, right? Uh, white supremacy is Western culture's greatest export, which is, I love that. I mean, I think that's really profound. Uh, and then I also read in an article you wrote recently, maybe at the end of last year, you said, and I'm going to quote you, uh, far too often in race equity work, white people's learning holds central positioning. All right. So with all of this, I know this is a sort of a longer way to a question, but I wanted to make sure I can encapsulate all that because it's relevant with your, 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 your perspective on white supremacy as Western culture's greatest export and race equity work being centered around sort of uh, white learning, sort of a level, a level of coddling and the understanding that white people, regardless of your circumstance, you're still going to have this privilege, even if your lived experience may not reflect that. I think the obvious question then, Hanif, is uh, what would you believe is the expectation of white people in this work? Can they lead a DEI organization or is that out of bounds? Uh, should they only serve as support systems? Um, uh, what is the expectation for white people who are positioned in justice, whether as the beneficiary or uh, someone who's trying to act as an advocate? Just sort of a broader question by large. Yeah, I love that. Um... It's loaded, so I recognize that. <laughs> some ways, again, like one thing that I, um, I do this facilitation training and um, where D&I practitioners kind of come from around the country and um, it's meant for folks who are kind of farther, farther along, right? And, of course, sir. Uh, and so this question comes up around, um, and it's mostly folks of color. There's, it's like a, maybe two thirds, one third, typically. Um, folks of color, white folks. And mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I'm really clear about with folks of color is that, um, look, it is not your job no. to change a white person's mind. Right. Yep. And, and this is sometimes news for folks of color. They're like, because we, we feel like it's our mission to like, like that's our, our, our legacy we carry from the last generation, all that kind of stuff. Right. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm coming to the white expectation in a second. So it's like, yeah, yeah not your job to change a white person's mind. Um, what your job is, if you choose to get into a DNI role, if you choose to get a DNI role and you're having to work with white folks, so that if those are the conditions, right, is that your job is to cultivate the conditions upon which a mind can change. Okay. So yep. that's your job. Your job is to establish a relationship with whoever you're working with. That doesn't have to be a relationship that's like, we're best friends and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. It does have to be a relation built on a commitment to their uh, growth. But you're, again, your job is not to change your mind. And then is to cultivate those kinds of conditions, right? So whether that's asking great questions, whether that's holding them account, whatever it ends up being. White people then, it's their job. So when you talk about what's the expectation, is I, it's not my job to change your mind. It is the expectation that you will position yourself as a learner in this journey mm. and, and act on that learning. Like that's to me the expectation. So when I think we have like some basic agreements that we um, used, uh, adapted from crazy conversations. So like when I think about basic expectations that white people will stay engaged, that white people will learn to speak their truth responsibly, that they will listen to understand non-dominant points of view mm -hmm. that they will be willing to experience discomfort 
and do things differently. Mm. Like that's the expectation I have for white folks that they're Mm. doing things differently, that, that they're doing things differently is coming from truly listening and engaging with non-dominant points of view and Mm -hmm. allowing and positioning themselves as a learner. So allowing that learning then to change how they act. That's the expectation to me is that ultimately, ultimately it's like, okay, I can't, all I can expect from a white person is that they're doing the very best they can. Mm -hmm. Like they're really, really trying hard to listen and learn and then do something with that learning. Yes. To me, it's a simple, it's as simple as that. Like I can, we can go lots of layers around all of that. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I think that like learning, they're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Differently means they're going to be uncomfortable. Right. It means they're going to be challenging the status quo. It means that they are going to have to stay engaged even when they don't have quote have to. Yes. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this off that as well, Hanif. Um, I, I love those expectations. I love those takeaways. Um, is, is there a line? Does a line show up? How do you know if there's a line? Where's a line between a white person who, who takes your, your feedback, right? The expectations and who does, how do we know if this white individual is doing advocacy authentically or is still doing it from a, pers- a perspective of the white savior complex? Um, how, how, and is, is, there, is, that, is that an obvious difference, I guess, um, between the two? It's not all, sometimes it's obvious, right? Mm. Um, but I think more often, I think especially white folks who have kind of moved farther along, it can be a little harder to figure out like, what's your intention here? Mm-hmm. Um, there's two schools of thoughts I have on that. One is I was on this panel one time and somehow um, the conversation about, um, it was right when Disney had made, um, uh, made the shift where they put those kind of messages before their movies that said like, hey, the disclaimers there, yeah. Bailey's movies, racist. <laughs> Aladdin, <laughs> such, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen uh, a few of them. And I, I thought, I mean, it was kind of cool they did that and stuff. But I remember this guy saying, like, look, I actually do not care why white people are doing that because I have a daughter. And the only thing I care about is that when she turns on Disney, it looks like her, sounds like her, all that kind of stuff. So if they're doing it because they think it's a whole new demographic and they're going to make more money, great. If they're going to do it because whatever, like, the bottom line is the the behavior changed. Why right. the behavior changed doesn't matter. Part of me sits with that in a big way. Like at the end of the day, the only kind of thing at the end of the day I care about is the behavior change. Mm-hmm. That being said, I do think like um, it's like all things, not either or, and it's nuanced. I think um, when we, when white folks are doing things to quote, save folks of color, um, I think we still hold people of color as um, incapable, unable, less than, all of those kinds of things. And so I think this is part of the learning for white folks in this work, which is what is my real intention in doing mm-hmm. this? Work? I mean, I think it's a critical, critical part of white a white person's journey in this work is to be asking very critically, what is my intention in this? Am I doing this in a very subtle way in which allows me to still profit off of people of color, right? Right, so I'm right. Still, still getting the validation that I need. I'm still profiting. I'm a good human being. Is that, so am I just 
doing another version, another version of this dance in just a little more slick way, a little more subtle way. But really, I'm still the 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 paradigm is I am still better than you. You still need me. I I am mm. the one to show you the way. And I am profiting off of this relationship. And I and as a white mm. person, want to believe that people of color don't actually understand that, know it, can't smell it a mile away. Right. Interesting. So I, and then our, in, as a consequence, are always going to keep me. We'll take the help. We'll do whatever, but always going to keep me in our, or can I do this work as a white person and say like, why am I doing this work? Because I no longer want to profit off of my, my integrity is on the line here. Like who I am as a human being and how I operate in the world and how, what I create in the world or my success in the world, I no longer want to be predicated on my ability to oppress or come at the expense of people of color, mm. right? So mm. can I start making decisions based on what is right for me and my own integrity? And can I redefine that for myself? And I think that's more for me a more powerful work because what then happens is when I am encountered, when there's a moment for a white person that's encountered, that's like, okay, I'm that like, they're going to have to do the right thing and it's not going to be in their best interest to doing the right thing. Sure. Right? Like they, like I've worked with so many leaders that like, I can tell you want to know the real, how you can tell someone's a white savior or not in this moment is wait till their money's their bottom line is threatened. Uh. Wait till their whiteness is threatened. And then you'll know why someone who, if someone is doing like, I always felt like you really don't know a white person until they're threatened. Interesting. Once they're threatened, their station is threatened, their comfort is threatened, or their bottom line is threatened. Now we'll get to sense mm. of that saviorism tends to only work mm -hmm. as long as they're benefiting in that relationship, mm. their station, all that kind of stuff. So can mm. someone do this because it's the right thing to do? And like all people trying to advance race equity work, it involves risks. Because yeah. you're going to challenge the status quo. So are you willing to put your station? Are you, And again, like I, I work with business leaders all the time. I'm not saying throw your whole business away. Don't think smart about all this kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Are you willing to challenge the status quo because it's the right way? You want to find a new way to do business. You want to find right. a new way to, 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 to support uh, the mission of your organization. Right. So to me, those are the things that are really important that we have to get white folks to be thinking about it in that way because those moments are going to happen where it's going to be easy for them to just say like, no, no, thank you. Yeah. If it's not, if it's not built into their integrity. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a theory around that and it comes right out of critical race theory called interest convergence theory, which essentially mm -hmm. says that, you know, white people would be willing to support the efforts of DEI so long as there's a convergence of interest. In other words, uh, so long as I can benefit from it, so long as it doesn't get in my way, like so long as my interests are met in this process, you know, that's why you see a lot of white folks supporting the work of another department. Like, oh, yeah, honey, fantastic job. I'm happy to support you. Great job. Uh, but, you know, just don't we're not going to do it. You know, don't bring that here. Uh, but, you know, oh, you want to uh, adopt a you know a kid of color? Hey, fantastic. I think that's the right thing to do. I'll never do it. I, you know, or, you know, that's that's not an example. But my point is supporting the right, the the, the work of DEI and racial justice Um is is oftentimes seen from afar, but not so much in your own in your own bubble in your own space. And you know, you talked about profiting from the work, and you know that was something that 
Robin D'Angelo has come under fire for quite a few times. So she's come under fire for it in the past. And I think there's still, um, there's still remnants of that. But, you know, folks like she and Tim Wise, they take a position of speaking to white people specifically. Uh, I want to ask you this question and move on to another question before we close out. Um, does that change it for you at all, honey, for your perspective? If if the white person, a Robin D'Angelo, a Tim Wise, someone who positioned himself as a leader in this work, is doing the works to specifically talk to white people about white racism and the racism that they have within them, does that change the ways in which you see their ability to profit or to engage the work. I love that. Um, so one quick thing before we go uh, on the interest convergence thing. Um, I'm a big believer in critical race theory and that yeah. in particular, I see that again and again. And again, one of the things I think when we're doing good DNI work is um, there is this again, zero sum belief, this like kind of like interest convergence kind of thing of like, if I advance race equity, it's bad for the bottom line. Right. So therefore I'm not like our only do vert. And I think good work around DNI helps people reimagine things, not from an either or perspective, like, okay, how can you as a business still get the profits you need to get, uh, meet your bottom line goals, all those things. And can we not do it at the expense of people of color? Like, can, are you mm -hmm. willing to be in that exploration? Mm -hmm. right? And, and can we not put things as kind of an either or either I'm, helping advance race equity and I'm decreasing my bottom line or I'm not doing race equity and I'm increasing my bottom line. Like we have to get out of that either or thinking. Yes. For yep. sure. Um, and, um, and I'm seeing, I see pockets and moments where that happens and it actually like when we're able to reimagine things. So um, on the, on the, on the Robin D'Angelo side, um, Honestly, like, here's, here's where I'm at that. Like, I think, um, I think there is a role for white folks. And I think it's, I think the number one role for white people in race equity work is to work with other white people. Like, I okay. think that's the number one role that white people have is to be working with other white folks on their own racial consciousness. And because if they're not doing it, then we're going to have to do it. One sure. Right. And who better, right? Who's going to better to understand that? Who may have more compassion for it? Who may, you know, all those kinds of things. That's right. I think where the Robin D'Angelo's of the world and the Tim Wise's of the world and all that stuff's are irritating to me personally and mm -hmm. frustrating to me is, and I think white <laughs> people just have a, are, are magicians. Like they always find a way to just recenter themselves in the conversation. Mm. So like, why is like there are so many good amazing voices of color that can speak to the same issues mm -hmm. as white folks and yet they don't know who like why would more people know who robin d'angelo is than you if we're talking about race equity like like seriously if we're talking about race equity uh -huh. and at the core of race equity at the core of race equity and let's say inclusion is this idea that um, we want to center the perspectives of the people most impacted. We want to create space for them because we believe the solutions exist within that community. Mm -hmm. So we want to center them. We want to position them to actually be decision makers. And we want to create space for them to resolve the issues within their own community resource, create all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So to me, why Robin D'Angelo, it, it's just another way that whiteness continues to get recentered is 
you know, Robin DiAngelo, Tim Wises of the world become these thought leaders around race equity and, and are, are making millions and millions of dollars off of it one way or the other, right? Um, and that's not the critical voice in this conversation. Mm. Critical voice are the voices of folks of color. And we keep, for me, we keep perpetuating like this idea that like who gets standing in, the, who really gets standing in this conversation are ultimately a white person who can talk about this in a way that is palatable to white and even challenge white, even if it's not palatable to white people, challenge white people, it's still positions it in that kind of way. And, yeah. and so it's a, it's a little confusing on one hand, I think like, yes, white people love Robin D'Angelo and they listen to her and they think about things about white fragility. But I even think like some of the approach that she has around how she talks about this is still filled with whiteness in some ways. And so mm. um, it's still a better than kind of conversation sometimes, at least feels that way. Interesting. Like, who knows and who doesn't know? I'm a smart white person. I know all this stuff. Mm. You know, therefore, you're fragile or whatever else. It's still kind of the white way of going about things often of like, I know more, I'm better than, I'm all these things. But right. Um, so it's a little confusing on one hand, like I, there are people I work very closely we, at CEI, we have white facilitators in our space that we know it's really important that they work with white folks because they have inroads. It's easier. We mm -hmm. don't want to have people of color having to prove to white folks that racism is real. Right, so right, right. There's a huge role for white folks. I think when they start getting, but even the white folks in CEI would know. Like my job is not to be the central figure at the Center for Equity and Inclusion. My job sure. is not to have all this great standing. My job is to be creating space for folks of color to actually be having standing. So to me, I always look at what's the impact, like what's the ultimate impact and is Robin D'Angelo, and again, like I'm just using her as a metaphor, yeah. creating more standing for people of color? I don't know. Like mm. I think might be willing more willing to listen to robin d'angelo than they would be to you white people mm. I don't know I, if that's well I'll, I'll tell you uh you know i it's you know it's one of the courses i run on on sort of inclusive organizations whenever white folks go to find outside research to kind of support their particular journey they always lean on robin d'angelo not many white folks if any lean on some of the the scholars of color out there who are saying very much the same thing to your point earlier and that's, that's both like cultural around who, who knows, mm. right? It's cultural around like who is safe to learn from, mm. right? Um, and it's also economic and institutional around like who will publishers then fund? Like who, will, who, how do we get, um, how can a person of color get published? How can they get their voice? Well, if the belief is that only white people will only there's a huge market for this a white market for this or dni is a billion dollar industry but they'll really listen to robin d'angelo's of the world then it's going to be 10 times as hard for you to get published yes right 10 times as hard you might be saying the exact same thing and it's economic who is actually profiting from this right. like, so, okay so somehow she is whether she likes it or not and whether she can name it and i'm, I'm she I'm, she doesn't i'm saying i'm profiting off of this great i'm glad you can name it you're still profiting off, right like Right, right, right. Today, like you're left out of a publishing industry or you as a metaphor, right? Like we're sure. left out of a publishing experience. We're left having to work to then, like, could you say things in the same tone, like in the same tone as Robin D'Angelo white people? Like, or is that only for white people? It, it, so it's like, it's problematic in a lot of different yeah. ways. Yeah, yeah. 
for me. And again, it's a good example of how white people don't have to try. Like they can even, you can be advancing race equity and perpetuating it at the same time. That's right. And to me, I see the Tim Wises and the Robin DeAngelos as doing that. Interesting. Uh, and not, and again, I, I will say this again, I think white people have a tremendous role to be working and educating other white people. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to be looking at how they do that. And is at the end of the day, at the end of the day, is that, is that work actually creating more space and opportunity for folks of color to lead this work? That's right. That's right. Like I people can... folks should only be leading this work. They should be in the driver's seat. White folks should be in the passenger seat. At yeah. All time. Okay. Yeah. That that's, yeah. That's a piece that was at the core of the question. I, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, man, we could talk about so much more. People may see it different. This is how I see it. No, I, I, no, I feel you. And that's what I want. And that's what we want. And I think anybody who lives a marginalized identity, especially that as a person of color, will understand, including myself, why people of color need to be in the driver's seat. Um, for sure. And, and, uh, and information is power. And my experience, the, the majority reason for pushback around these conversations around DEI and racial justice above all else is due to misinformation. Um, there's a reason why states are who are banning CRT are also banning social emotional intelligence uh, work, because if you can empathize with the narrative, then it would obviously make sense. I mean, uh, CRT by definition is, you know, as you know, is just telling you that, you know, race is baked into all of the institutions, legal, systemic, you know, academic in the United States. And we want to, we, we need to be mindful of that as we, as we consider reimagining these things, right? It, it, uh, free from some of the nuances, that's basically the point of it. So for a white person to take that and say, this means that all white people are evil is you're, you're not listening. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not, you're, you're misinformed, right? So, so if you have the information, then it stands to reason why, to your point, it would make sense why people of color would be in the driving seat. Not to, not to mean that that's tantamount or akin to, carrying the burden and, and, right. and wearing the boat burden and load, but directing the ship. Uh, absolutely. There's, there's so much more to cover. I'm, I'm going to pass on a question for the sake of time, Hanif, and I'm going to go to my final question here. Um, which is that you, you have a book in the works, something forthcoming down the road. That's very much, uh, framed around the vision you have for your daughter, Amina. Mm -hmm. Um, two things here. Talk a little bit about the book and, and, and to, to whatever extent you would like. I, I know it's on the way and, uh, and talk about what it means to be a dad, man. And for me, it's, it's clear to me that it's, it's a big part of your identity. As a father myself, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. As a dad of color, more than anything, talk a little bit about the book, the vision, and then what it means to be a dad to a, a, a young lady of color and a, just a father of color and what that means to you. Um, so the book coming out next fall, um, pub date, we're, we should know next couple months. We're working on the title right now. I like the title we have, but uh, the publishers aren't so sure. So we'll see what the title is. <laughs> okay. And uh, we'll go from there. But um, okay. really the book, what I wanted to do with the book, um, one of the things that I see, and this connects to the Robin D'Angelo conversation, which was unintentionally in D&I, I think D&I is in a really interesting spot. Um, in a very tentative spot. It's, you know, obviously a billion dollar industry. Mm. And yet I think if you asked 70, if you, if you pull people of color who are in businesses that are doing DNI work, my bet is 75 to 80% of those people of color would say, I don't have any part of DNI in my organization. Mm. Mm. Um, and 
like, and I think it's, it's both part of like the last five years and just being tired and exhausted of this, but also some of the unintentional ways in which these conversations tend to center white learning yeah. as kind of constant. Um, and oftentimes that learning is at the expense of folks of color. Mm, and yes. So, um, Almost I, always. Right. Right. And mm. so, and one of the unintentional things that happens in that is that folks of color even take on that all DNI is, is educating white folks as if there's no work for us to do. Mm. <laughs> and, and there is so much work for us to do. There's so much work when it comes to black brown relationships when it comes sure. to in terms of our own uh, sexism or homophobia that lives in our, in our uh, communities. In, internalized um, racism within our own community. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All of our colorism. Coped with all of that, um, how sure. we heal, how we even how we navigate a system that is like at every turn is kind of oppressive in one way or the other. So there is massive amount of work for us to do as a community of color, and it never gets centered. There's no conversation for it, um, mm -hmm. or space for it. Mm -hmm. So I really recognize that in all my conversations with folks of color, and I wanted to write a book. Um, also, the other thing that always comes up is. Um, all, lots of the books I've read are, um, are always about how we're just surviving or kind of, you know, making it, just making it in spite of all those things. And I think there's a space for all those books and for us to, to connect with other groups. I wanted to write a book that was about us and for us and written to us. So I'm not, not that I don't think there's a lot of value for white folks. I think there is but I'm not doing a lot of explaining for white folks of certain things, mm. or things that are left unsaid. You're only going to know probably if you're a person of color and I'm not right. prioritizing white comfort in this book. It's really oh. like, um, it's, it's a book that is really at the end of the day, focused on the relationships that we need to forge if we're really going to thrive um, or create something new so it's following me as i'm intersecting both in education spaces and workspaces and in home spaces um, with a number of folks from different um, uh, race and ethnic backgrounds and it's just tracking what those different relationships what are happening in those relationships and what about those relationships allowed for us to create something really special whether it's a youth program or whether it's a ci or whatever it ends up being so it really is um it's funny because so many people wanted me to write a book on D and I, because we're, but so what, yeah. we're constantly, everybody that we work with is like, Hey, this work can't be done out of relationship. Like you, it has to be done in relationship. And so mm. I wanted a book that could really be about what does it mean for us to reimagine a world mm -hmm. in which reimagine a black and brown centered world. What, what would that world be like? Um, like that's my, when I think about my mission statement in life, it is helping being an architect of a black and brown centered world. Yes. And I don't think we'll ever get there, but what I do know is if we're going to create that kind of world, it's only going to be done in relationship and whether, and we are out of relationship right now, like black, I'm talking about black and brown folks, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, if I, I think there's so much anti-blackness running through brown communities that we need to explore and unpack there's you know, biases happening in the black community around, like there's all kinds of stuff and there's good, rich work to do. So I wanted to have uh, a, a story be out there about what does that look like for us? What's our, when we're doing our work, 
what does that look like? And what is the impact of our, when we really are in relationship around that? So yes, that's the book. it's coming out. It's a little different. It's not what people expected, but I think it's, um, I'm really, really, really excited about it. I love that. And Give then me fatherhood is central. Yeah, yeah, go for fatherhood it. Yeah. Central, me and to the book, um, there's four letters to Amina in the book that kind of capture the learning I've had. Nice. But to me, I'll say this about fatherhood. There is no other identity that I hold that comes close to <laughs> the identity that I have as a father of color. Like that is the most central. It's unbelievable, identity. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like it is shaped. It shapes every single thing I do goes through an Amina filter. And sure. uh, so for me, Amina and being a father of color is both like holds me accountable to being mm -hmm. the very best human being I can be and constantly thinking like, am I being who Amina, who Amina needs me to be right now? Am I modeling to her what's possible for us? That's right. All of that. Um, and, you know, as just a parent, you know, growing up in the way I grew up, all that kind of stuff, there's just, um, I think one of the things the book is exploring is this idea of joy. And um, one of the things that I've really learned is um, over this journey is that joy and us finding joy is race equity work. And it's exploring what is that. And one of the things I'm, you know, talking to folks in the book, really realize that joy is found in these relationships, not in things that we acquire, but in these relationships. Yes. And so for Amina and my role, her, like there is no greater experience of joy than like being on a soccer field with her late at night and talking to her or like right. reading a book with her late at night or like hugging her at night or all these kinds of things. It's been the one true experience of joy um, that I've had in my life. So it's just like both from a you know, race equity standpoint, she keeps, she's that next generation and she keeps me thinking about who I, you know, who I need to be in the world and all that stuff. But from a personal place, there is no greater place of joy than being a father of color. Like that's, that's it. I couldn't agree more, man. I, I really, really <laughs> appreciate that. I always like to, if I have men of color on who are, who are fathers, I always like to carve some space for that question because we need to hear it. You know, we need to empower one another uh, in that. There's a lot of tropes or stereotypes and um, a lot of of challenges that black men and, and brown men of who are, who are dads experience and face. And, uh, you know, the more we can normalize the beauty of fatherhood, the more we can talk about uh, that, uh, sure, the challenges uh, present themselves, but they also hold us accountable, like you said, right? and, and, and change the way we can perceive things. I think the more we'll be able to shift the narrative from sort of absenteeism to, to very much a presence and, and, and an effective presence of that in, in our kids' lives. Um, Hanif, man, that's it. I really appreciate you taking some time to come kick it with me. Before I let you go, go ahead and tell people where they can find you. Websites, hashtags, uh, uh, social media handles, anything like that. <laughs> uh, you know, anything, if the, if the work is resonating, you know, you can get in touch with us, ceipdx.com. Um, and... You know, you can just find me on Instagram. I'm not, I'm, I'm not super active on Twitter or um, LinkedIn. I'm on there, um, but you can find me on um, on Instagram. Um, and I should know my. I'm so bad at this. I should know my, my Instagram. Fossil, there's only so many Emmy Fossils. Find me on there. Well, okay. Face. If not, I'll oh, this one you can tell I'm old. 
you know this. I, I have someone helping me with my social media. She's going to kill me. <laughs> so good. I appreciate you, Hanif, man. Thank you so much for taking some time to kick it with us on the chopping block. Uh, everybody, of course, my listeners, uh, have a wonderful day. Dr. Sherrod Robbins here with Hanif Fazel, and you're on the chopping block at visceralchange.org.